want to talk today about something that's been on the front page of the paper and really ask the question about Milk Run in Australia. Is it really about venture capital exuberance or is it about how hard it is to do 10-minute delivery in any Western country profitably? Welcome to Tomorrow's News, the podcast that cuts through the noise on venture capital and alternative investing. I'm Lucy Du, and I'm here to guide you through the exciting and ever-changing world of investing with my co-host, Gavin Ezekowitz, the co-founder of BFA Global Investors. Together, we bring you our take on the hottest discussions in growth investing and global markets, from Silicon Valley startups to the burgeoning markets in Asia and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, join us as we dive deep into the world of alternative investing. Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's family and associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice. Good afternoon, Lucy. Great to be with you again. Thank you, Gavin. Why don't you first tell us what Milk Run is, who they are and what they're doing? Milk Run is in the space of called the 10-minute grocery delivery space. It's a little bit different than the 40-minute grocery delivery space, which you might be familiar with companies in the US like DoorDash or Kohl's, which does next day and so forth. They operate in some very narrow geographies like Bondi, and they mostly used electric bikes to try to get you everything from a beer to some Parmesan cheese to a bunch of apples in a very short period of time. Okay. And you mentioned it's a little bit different to Uber Eats and Kohl's because it's much faster. I don't know too much about kind of the US market, but I definitely know in Asia and China, there's a number of these very similar platforms where you can get anything and everything delivered within about 30 minutes. How does Milk Run or this concept make money? What's their business model? Well, look, that is to be seen, right? And so there are a ton of these companies that you've probably never heard of, like Joker, Fridge No More, Gorillas, Bike, Getter, GoPuff. There are lots of them. And all of them are trying to do the same thing. And we'll talk about the US market in the moment, which is they're trying to say there is a price that people will put on very speedy delivery of the thing that they need to complete that recipe or that they may have forgotten at the grocery store or that they're not willing to leave their house or apartment for. Getter, uh, G-E-T-I-R, is a company originally founded in Turkey. They have about a $10 billion valuation, even into the latter part of 2022. So there are some of these businesses that work quite well. Mostly, they don't charge you for delivery, but some of them do. I think everybody is trying to figure out how do you get the customer to pay? Yes, absolutely. And when you sent me the very extensive list of competitor companies, I did look up a few of them. Joker is still alive. Fridge No More is no more. It's dead. Gorillas got acquired by Getter. And Buick, however you pronounce it, is also yeah. dead. So there's definitely 
across the spectrum, a wide range of successes and slightly nuanced models. Milk Run is sitting in the Australian market and the Australian population, the population of Sydney is quite limited as compared with other markets like the US or Asia. How are you looking at these opportunities in other markets in similar or different areas? First of all, we need to consider that we're largely looking at developed markets. And I think that in all of these markets, you've got to ask yourself whether or not the company can overcome the relatively high operating costs that are exhibited in Western markets. So you generally need to find a way to create enough value using generally using technology in order to bridge yourself to a consumer that's very willing to pay and has a large wallet. But you're also cognizant that you've got quite a high operating cost, particularly when you're involving labor. It's funny because one of the ways that people often put this, and Fred Wilson famously at Union Square Ventures says, he says, I invest in bits, right? I don't invest in atoms, right? Atoms are everyday things that you do. Uh, Bits are technology like SaaS companies. You want technology platforms. It sort of sounds pithy and helpful. At At the end of the day, though, Tesla is an atoms company. And boy, it's sure done an amazing job of building an automobile which I think many people wouldn't have believed was possible uh, to do profitably even a few years ago. Mm. And just the market size I was looking at, I think it was gorillas. The way that their business model worked seemed really similar to Milk Run, which made me think if Milk Run was sitting in the US, perhaps they would have lasted longer, they would have been more successful because they were sitting in a larger ecosystem I think what you're going to see in the U.S. that is helpful in general when you look at consumer technology is you're going to see a much broader suite of approaches being taken to the market. And people can try more things because you've just got a larger market by population, you've got a larger market by capital, you've got a larger market by founders. And so it may be true that that had Milk Run tried its model starting out in Austin or San Francisco or somewhere else, that they may have been more successful. They may have captured the zeitgeist in a different way, or they may have just run up against even more competition than they found here. It's hard to know. Why don't we talk about the investment into Milk Run? They made headline news earlier this year where they raised $75 million in their Series A, led by Tiger Global, Airtree, Do you remember what you had mentioned to us when they raised that funding? So the guy who founded the company also is the guy behind Koala Mattress, which was quite a successful startup. If you look at my LinkedIn feed or whatever, you look at the AFR, there's plenty of people who are now doing the I told you so dance. And yes, my team will remember that I gave them about six months. The reason when they did that raise, the reason I did at the time, though, was because we'd already seen Joker exit New York by the time that Milk Run entered the market here. Mm. And the reason why these platforms have struggled is in general, it's been very difficult outside of emerging markets, 
to lower your labor costs enough to a level that the, where the consumer is accepting the cost of delivery. You just don't have that arbitrage because effectively what you are doing in this business model is it's like paying your buddy to go down to the corner store for you, right? Would you pay him five bucks? You're sitting comfortably on the couch. I don't know. Would you pay him 10 bucks? Probably not. But at the end of the day, the corner store is just around the corner. And most of these models do operate in places where there's a liquor store, there's a corner store. So that was one of the reasons why I think a lot of folks probably said at the time, gee, can this work? But as I say, it is easy in retrospect to say it couldn't work. And I was thinking, apart from the cheap labor, would there be other factors that may have led to, in a different parallel universe, success, the milk run, perhaps if they were like Getter raising their Series A in January 2020 instead of January 2023, perhaps they wouldn't have faced such big impacts as a result of inflation and rising prices, perhaps if they hadn't targeted eastern suburbs and targeted other areas of Sydney, that would have made any difference? Look, if that had a bigger war chest, they would have lasted longer, but I don't know, that changes a lot. So the question is always, how do you cover the cost of delivery of a good when the customer doesn't want to pay for that delivery or assesses the total cost of providing that service, inclusive of delivery, as being too high. And there are other models, right? You can deliver a wider variety of goods. You can use advertising. There's some famous businesses in the snack business in the US that actually include new snacks in the assortment and that effectively they get a very low price on a very low wholesale price. Because the people that have those new snacks want to test them in the market or want to grow the profile of those Mm. snacks. So there are ways of getting around these costs. Milk Run just didn't have enough time to build scale. Now, I find it interesting. I ride an electric bike. I find it interesting that they used electric bikes, which I think points a little bit to the future of a lot of these spaces, which is... Way more effective to have an electric bike than just to have a scooter that uses petrol. Pretty cheap mode of transportation. It's quick, works well in places where the weather is good, like Sydney. Maybe there's a hack here that we will see because eventually these things come around again. We'll be around how do you use some of those more efficient delivery tools like electric bikes? I think we can discuss where they could have pivoted, where their success and failures are. But I do want to turn our attention to the investment side and looking at the managers and the funds that actually invested in Milk Run. Obviously, we do a lot of DD on both companies and venture funds who are making investments into companies like Milk Run. From their perspective, thinking about how they've approached this investment, do you think they would have had all the information? How should, as investors, be thinking about these funds and their subsequent investments that they're making after what's happened to Milk Run? 
So let me just say, first off, I'm not a particular advocate for Airtree. I haven't done a massive amount of research on their funds. We're not investors in their funds. Yes, it looks bad on the front cover of the paper for their funds, but really it is about aggregate return. They're long, the return over the 10 years, not the return over one investment. So if I look at the reported news as it relates to Airtree, I think they said it's around two and a half percent of their fund was invested in Milk Run. So if you consider that you're in general underwriting to probably five times returns or so, mm. you're going to have some failures, but your wins are more than going to offset your failures. So the overall return profile of this fund is going to be more impacted by whether or not they've got a bunch of winners than whether or not this one failed. Again, I don't have any window into Airtree's funds, but if I were looking at their fund today, I'd want to look at their whole portfolio and say, okay, that one didn't work, but let's look at what's really performing well and what might have five and 10 times potential, because that's where that's going to more than offset. That's the first thing. The other thing that we need to remember is that companies fail every day, and there are very, very few that end up as IPOs or being taken over at a more mature scale. And I think investors need to recognize that often even the successful company, Slack being a famous one, right? It was a failed gaming platform company that you know, yes. pivoted to messaging, often fail or pivot in meaningful ways before they're successful. So it is not a straight shot to success. And investment managers do know that. I reflected actually when I was looking at my notes on this, that I remember the Amazon IPO because I'm pretty old, right? And we used to joke that they lost money on every book and they'd make it up on the volume. Well, I mean, obviously that doesn't make sense, but but they did more than that, right? So it's not, you know, we need to overcome this view that near-term losses at the EBITDA line are a death threat. They're not necessarily. Importantly, we're looking at the shots the managers take, not the guy who tells you about all the deals he didn't do, including bad ones. We want to know what are the deals they are doing and because that's where you're going to generate your return. One of the things that we like about the U.S. market for venture is that in general, you can, as a venture manager, and the venture managers like M13, we really like who invest in consumer technology, you can see the breadth of talent, uh, founders and companies and approaches being applied to a problem. And then using your judgment as a manager, assess which of these do I believe will be successful and is priced right. That is my entry point adjusts for the risk that they may not be successful or they may take longer or so forth. It's quite hard sometimes if you've got very few choices to do that. You've also got a relatively small market. And so if you don't, if you don't line up perfectly with the cohort, you don't have a lot of places to pivot to. Right. And then, of course, you don't have a very deep capital market. So if it doesn't work, you might find yourself running out of money, even if all you really needed was another six months or another year or so to prove the principle. But but I think that, you know, what we tend to look for is that you've got a manager that's got the expertise to see the breadth of what's going on, that they can then guide capital, hopefully, over time more efficiently than when you just see a narrow window. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really great place to end. And perhaps in future episodes, we can talk about an example of a consumer tech company in the US. 
love to do that. That's fantastic. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you so much, Kevin.